Hello, hello. You are listening to Talking Aging on Vancouver Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM or coopradio.org or the podcast version, the Talking Aging podcast. Thank you so much for joining. My name is Mika Marcelet and I am recording on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And today I'm speaking with Joe Wright, formerly a registered dietitian, Mr. Joseph Wright. We will be talking about diet and healthy aging and he is just a wealth of knowledge on this subject there is actually so much to get into i have a feeling i might be doing another mini episode after this just to kind of express even more on the topic of diet and healthy aging i also just wanted to say i am so sorry i know i took some time there's been a pause since um releasing the last episode of talking aging i am as you may or may not know I am a gerontology student and I kind of took some time at the end of last semester just to focus on my course I was taking death and dying I've just I study part-time so I just do one course at a time and I mean I passed it was an amazing course I totally recommend it and would love to answer any questions for anybody else who is studying gerontology at SFU right now Um, and otherwise I will just, we'll just get right into this episode. As always, I will let my guests introduce themselves. So please enjoy. Hello. Uh, my name is Joe Wright. Um, I'm a former accredited practicing dietitian. I worked, um, within hospital settings as well as community dietetic settings, uh, but mainly within my own practice, which was focused on, uh, clinical chronic disease management. So I worked for my own uh, business for five years. I've been uh, an accredited practicing dietitian for that whole time. And now I've taken that knowledge and skills where I've transferred all of that information into completing my master's of teaching. And now I am a teacher at uh, Queensland Academies of Creative Industries, and I'm loving bringing my knowledge from the clinic into the classroom. Amazing. Well, I am so glad you were able to join me today, Joe. Thank you. And in all your different roles and all the settings that you've been able to work in, what have you noticed, like what role does diet play when it comes to like healthy aging, healthy lifestyle? Great question. There's so much that goes into food around making sure that we're health, uh, healthy through um, our aging process. It's something that we're all going to go through. So it's great to have an idea around it. Um What I like to think about, a lot of people don't make this connection, but food is just as important as, say, a medicine is. Almost more important because it's what we're fueling our body with. So ensuring that we're having a wide variety of foods ensures that our body has the right amounts of micronutrients and macronutrients to allow our body to go through its healthy aging processes and stay as well as we can through the aging process. And how, what is your interpretation of what a healthy diet is? Like, how do you describe this to people? Okay, great question. So a healthy diet, especially around people um, who are going through later stages in life, is making sure that you have enough energy to complete your activities of daily living without feeling absolutely exhausted by the end of the day. So you know that you have the right amount of nutrition if you can go through all those activities without feeling exhausted. So this would include definitely having a diverse intake of colorful fruits and vegetables. Having enough fruits and vegetables has a lot of those micronutrients and vitamins that our bodies really need and are lacking, especially going through the aging process where our ability to absorb nutrients has been compromised. Now I want... Um, so we can ex- Go ahead. Oh. 
we can expand on that. Um, so talking about differences in uh, rates of our five core food groups, which are grains and cereals, vegetables, fruits, meats and alternatives, and dairy and alternatives. And we can notice that um, as people get older, that these requirements change. So for example, the greater two that you'll be looking at is grains and cereal foods. For men, we're looking uh, fewer between the ages of 51 to 70, about six serves of grains and cereals. But that um, reduces slightly when we're over the age of 70 to about four and a half serves. And you'll notice a difference between men and women with women having originally between the ages of 51 to 70, looking at trying to get around four serves of grains and cereals in, and that drops to about three. So we can see that that drops in our grains and cereals. Our vegetable intake stays the same, around five serves. Fruit stays the same, around two serves for men and women. But then we can, again, notice a few differences when we move down to our dairy and alternative products. So for men between the ages of 51 to 70, it's around two and a half serves. And that jumps up to about three and a half serves for men aged 70 plus. And what's really interesting around women in dairy and alternative foods is between the ages of 51 to 70 and greater than 70 years old, that women should be aiming to have around four serves of dairy and alternative products. This makes sense because it relates to the uh, lowered levels of estrogen that happens when ladies go through menopause and this protective effect of the ability to lay down calcification in the bones related to estrogen um, yet drops significantly. So we want to replace that by increasing our dairy and alternative foods. Um, and then our last major food group is our meat and alternatives. And that stays the same with about two and a half serves for men and about two serves for women. Okay, so for the dairy and alternatives, that's obviously specific to bone health. And I know yes. you mentioned before that like food is medicine. So in this case, would you say like increasing your calcium, I guess, and increasing your dairy intake is a almost more effective way than say like taking calcium tablets? Yeah, definitely. Um, a food first approach, um, which is the paradigm that my dietetic practice works through is that food is more bioavailable and a less, you could say, bastardized version than what a supplement would do. So our body is used to breaking down, absorbing foods in these types of natural states rather than these single chemicals. So not only will you be getting those important micronutrients or trace elements such as calcium, but you're also getting the increased um, protein that goes along with dairy foods, which is really important for people who are aging because again we have that really uh, reduced ability to absorb food so having a greater protein pool there is really helpful um, especially around maintaining lean body muscle mass as well as around things like uh, the ability to fight off disease keeping our immune system healthy and being able to adequately um, repair wounds i see now i'd like to shift and talk about the specific population of people living in long-term care. And I know mm -hmm. in many long-term cares, they have amazing chefs making extremely nutritious meals, but that are completely useless if they don't get eaten. So I wanted to know if you have any, um, are you able to speak to any effective ways that help older adults actually eat their food? 
Yeah, totally. And I agree. This is a big problem. I was looking through the results of the Royal Commission that was done into aged care that just released today, and its title was pretty stark in that it's just called neglect. And it's shown that there's a high rate of neglect, and that relates to um, not enough time for patient and carer, as well as having adequate uh, qualified staff on site 24 hours a day. Even having a registered nurse 24 hours a day was not found. And this flows down to, uh, I mean, it all comes around funding usually, yeah. um, but definitely flows down to into the kitchen where there's not adequate funding placed on kitchen staff or having them properly trained. And this, uh, the flow and effects will be reduced nutritional quality of food. So it comes down to making sure that the people who are in the kitchen, who are usually unqualified cooks, who are doing the best that they can with the resources they have. So to fix this, um, it could be a good idea within aged care settings to uh, employ some type of uh, qualified chef who has this knowledge and skills around changing um, types of textures and foods to increase the palatability and the appetite of patients. Um, concurrently, I would also suggest making sure that um, hospitals or aged care facilities uh, employ the services of a food service dietitian who has been trained, they're a qualified dietitian in um, making sure that all of those texture modified and specialized diets are meeting the nutritional requirements for the patients. So having adequate education, someone who has the skills to be able to take this um, knowledge and turn it into um, a fantastic nutritional product and having the um, dietitians there to ensure that all patients are getting these important uh, foods, a great way to do that. Um, well, studies also show that having the home-cooked meals, so familiar uh, smells and textures and look of food, also increases patients' appetites, even around patients with dementia. Smells are really highly um, associated with emotions in the brain. It's um, connected to the limbic system. So these are the types of memories that people living with Alzheimer's or dementia will have an increased affinity or connection to those types of smells and foods because it's um, so connected to the base part of their brain. So if um, we have qualified people in the kitchen taking um, suggestions from the residents, then you'd have an increased intake of those foods because it's those familiar sights and smells that those patients are used to and therefore you would hope you would see a flow on to increased intake and less um, food wastage getting that essential medicine as you would say that food is that is so um, interesting that's really cool it is, isn't it yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of programs there's one that was run by maggie beer here in australia and she is a real advocate of foundation the maggie beer foundation is all around getting into kitchens. She's um, an ex-qualified chef and her program is all based around getting qualified chefs and dietitians into um, smaller and larger hospital settings or aged care facilities to teach those cooks on how to make these types of foods more appetizing and therefore more useful to the patient. That's what I was going to say because you mentioned texture and I wanted to yes. know if you knew any tips or tricks to make food look more appetizing when people are specifically on a soft diet. 
Definitely. So we know that those um, smells kind of are lost when we're um, processing foods to make them more specific to textures. Um, sometimes those flavor profiles can also be lost and also doesn't look as appetizing. So we want to try and overcome those barriers as much as we can, um, while also taking in the um, advice coming from uh, speech pathologists and occupational therapists who are there to really assist um, older people in being able to take in and swallow safely. So making sure that we have, um, trying to get in all those essential uh, macronutrients. So things like making smoothies is really helpful, especially around breakfast or mid-meals. So you can pop in some fruit, some yogurt. So you're getting your fruits, you're getting that dairy intake. Yogurt's already really helpful also in that it's a fermented food. So you're increasing that probiotic intake. Um, and then you can add what other um, flavors that you want to throw in there. So you could put um, some oats in there to maybe thicken up a little bit. So that's more easy for people who have dysphagia to swallow um, honey for a bit of sweetness. Um, you could put a bit of cinnamon in there, which can help with metabolism as well. Um, having things like soups as well is really helpful for people with texture-modified issues to eat. Um, you can change the texture of that by blending it to make it a bit thinner for people. Um, adding things like custards or creams to desserts, to those already soft types of desserts, can be helpful. Um, adding eggs to smoothies or even just having scrambled eggs. Um, boiling or roasting vegetables before you mash them or put them into a soup can also help to bring up those flavors and overcome that blandness that types of um, texture-modified diets have connotations in them. Yeah, those are great ideas. And I've seen some really cool things where people are on a blended food diet, but they, you know, the chef will almost assemble the food on the plate to make it look like a, a turkey dinner or whatever. So it still looks like the food that it is supposed to be, right? Yeah, presenting in appetizing ways is definitely another way to overcome those barriers. Or even if the patient is able um, to have them involved in the process of making the food, because that makes them feel more connected. It's a, another social thing that is really uh, important around food. Um, it's one of the biggest social interactions that humans will have, and it's one of the biggest things we have control over. So if we can allow patients or people living in aged care homes to be involved in that process, that will really increase their willingness to eat the food also because they felt like they're an integral part in it. Oh, absolutely. Like the social aspect of dining cannot be understated. I think it plays a huge role. Oh, 100%. And that's, that's another thing I had here around soft or texture modified diets. Eat in a social way. Make sure that um, people with different diets aren't cordoned off into different parts of the dining area. Make yeah. sure that all dining experiences should be social, interactive, um, relaxing times. They shouldn't be stressful either. So if we find that, say, a patient um, is refusing food, or is acting difficultly at that time for whatever type of medical background that they have, that we're not forcing food, but we can allow them to have options there and available um, also outside of specific meal times. So for when they feel like they are ready to eat, that there is always a choice there for them. So you mentioned when people are refusing to eat or kind of saying that they're not hungry, but they may not have eaten yet that day. Um, do you have any other advice besides like, I know you, you said 
offering the choice, not definitely not forcing. Is there anything else you've seen to be effective in getting people to eat? The most, yeah, the most effective things are offering controlled choices. So maybe they don't want the whole meal, but you can say, oh, you can have either um, these carrots and a piece of meat, or you can have this piece of fish and these pieces of broccoli. So giving them a controlled choice. So it's not too overwhelming for if there's a, a really large choice of foods there can be really helpful. Oh, um, I think that is for everybody. Like whenever you ask someone, what do you want to eat tonight? No one knows the answer because it's almost like there's exactly, too many options. Exactly. And especially if you have a reduced capacity to actually feel your own um, cues to hunger and satiety, having those controlled choices and having foods available all the time outside of meal times, whether that be a piece of fruit or some biscuits with a, a tea or something, or even if um, patients are having really low intake, you can also offer types of um, fortified nutritional drinks such as Fortisip or Resource Plus, um, which are nutritionally complete um, formulas, which kind of just tastes like uh, milk or juice. So there's like chocolate flavored, iced coffee flavored, um, strawberry flavored or orange juice. And these small um, resources, um, they're only a few hundred mil, so they're really small, but they pack the same amount of energy as a whole meal would do. So if you're finding patients or your loved one at home is um, having really reduced intake, it's a great idea to have these types of nutritional supplements on hand because they're small and easy to swallow. I see. Now, I also wanted to ask you, are there any myths that you'd like to bust when it comes to, you know, the role that diet plays in healthy aging? And like, what's the most unhelpful advice, dietary advice that you commonly hear? Um, really, really high rates of protein intake. Okay. Um, there's a, a lot around like the paleo diet or these types of diets have really, really heavy protein focus. Yes, we know proteins are important. Um, we know that we need a protein pool to be able to build back um, muscles and help our immune system, et cetera. And we can see that reflected in the increased um, dairy and alternatives that are suggested within the data. However, too much protein can lead to increased damage or increased filtering on your liver and your kidneys. And people with already compromised livers and kidneys can have difficulty processing the amount of urea. Also, yeah, too much urea can um, cause crystals, okay, gout to start forming in joints. And the associated um, increased saturated fat that comes around eating lots of animal products isn't helpful for people with um, heart conditions either. So we want to reduce the overall uh, fat that's coming into the diet. That's saturated fat. We're looking for more of those monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats that you'll find, find in more types of plant-based foods. Um, so what I would suggest, if you're looking at the amounts of proteins that we're looking for, that when we're choosing a server protein, say a piece of red meat or chicken, that we want it to be about the size of the palm of our hand. Okay. We're trying not to have an, an increase in saturated fat contents. So they're making sure that you're cutting off visible fat from the meat before you start cooking it because that can infiltrate the rest of the meat. Okay. Um, and look for around three to four serves of that red meat a week, about three to four serves of that chicken, 
two to three serves of oily fish. So things like salmon, sardines, or mackerels are really helpful in that place. And then the rest of the proteins for that week coming from plant-based sources, whether they be uh, beans, legumes, pulses, nuts, seeds, those types of foods. Um, Good source of protein, reduced or no level of associated saturated fat coming from that and also reducing the amount of cholesterol that's coming from those meals. So we should be protecting our heart in that way. Also getting in those two to three serves of oily fish a week will also help people um, to have adequate amounts of omega-3 fatty acids coming into the diet. This is really important, especially around people with dementia or people aging in general. We have this thick fatty coating around our um, neurons or our nervous system, which helps to insulate the electrical um, impulse that's going down that nerve. And over time, that can degrade away. But by having adequate amounts of good, healthy fat in the diet, we can rebuild that insulation and allow for those electrical pathways to be um, propagated down the neurons, which should, in theory, reduce the amount of dementia and Alzheimer's outcomes because we're allowing for that electrical impulse to go all the way through. And one other thing with proteins, which is really important, is that it's the um, important source of choline, which is uh, the precursor to what makes our neurotransmitters, which allows for the pass from one synapse to the other. It's very technical. But without that choline, which found in uh, protein foods, then we can't allow for the proper release of that neurotransmitter will have decreased mental capacity and decreased ability to um, move our uh, muscles because we don't have those electrical impulses making it all the way down. Okay, so that was very technical, but I think this <laughs> might be what, like from what I understand, because we obviously do not have a cure for dementia or Alzheimer's, but people care very deeply about dementia prevention and a lot of things I've read is Mediterranean diet and plant-based diets can show evidence. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that, on this topic? Definitely, because the Mediterranean diet has a larger focus um, on plant-based proteins rather than coming all the way just from um, animal-based proteins. And it has a larger intake of those types of fish proteins, which we're just talking about the benefits of omega-3 and having lower saturated fatty acids, lower cholesterol sources of proteins. And that definitely aligns with the Mediterranean diet. What I also like about the Mediterranean diet, especially for older people, is that it also has um, a great uh, focus on those types of dairy and alternative foods, such as cheeses and milks, um, which are really helpful. The added benefit of those cheeses milks and yogurts is the probiotics and i really love talking about probiotics it's so helpful not just for people with dementia but the effects of the gut brain microbiome axis so ensuring that patients or people are having um, adequate amounts of probiotics in the diet you'll see an increased healthiness in their um, ability to have comfortable bowel movements you also see an increase in mood and a decrease in depression because probiotics are really essential in breaking down all those different types of nutrients that you're taking into the digestive system 
but also helps to create those types of intermediate pathways that help for um, help healthy emotional state and decrease rates of anxiety and depression. This is why they call the gut the second brain. Like I, it is the second brain. The connection is it's such a direct connection, right? Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. I mean, even if you think about, um, you know, on a basic neural level, we have uh, one of our ten cranial nerves, the vagus nerve, which comes down and innervates our gut. And when we uh, practice mindfulness or deep breathing, we're actually innervating that vagus nerve, which allows us to be more mindful or more present around what our actual cues to hunger and satiety are. That also works on those intermediates that are being produced by the gut-brain microbiome axis. So having a healthy um, microbiome is one of the best things we can do for any stage in our health. Wow. All right. Well, lastly, I just wanted to ask you, what is your favorite part about the work that you do in this field? Uh, The outcomes for patients was the best thing that I felt during uh, my practice. It was awesome to be able to be with a patient from the beginning of their health journey, find out about um, them as a person, what they like to do, what their cooking's like, what their dietary intake's like, what's the rest of their lifestyle look like, and then finding ways of being able to modify or help them be targeted in their nutritional journey and seeing them have those health outcomes was the best thing. And I mean, I know I love probiotics and I'll keep banging on about it, but the greatest changes I saw in people was adding those daily probiotics into the diet and just seeing the overall improvement in their health. Wow. Well, there you go. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all this information. This has been extremely interesting and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime, Nika. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about diet and healthy aging with Joe. Um, I just want to send a reminder that Joe is no longer accredited dietitian, although he previously was. Now he has moved on to other endeavors, very exciting um, endeavors in his future. And I just want to remind you, any diet, nutrition, health advice should first and foremost come from your doctor, either your primary care provider or any other specialist, but I would definitely say always consult with your doctor before making any diet or healthcare decisions. And I want to thank you once again for listening. This is Talking Aging and my name is Mika Marsalais.